There are times in our lives when we struggle, when we are full of anxiety, of fear, of hopelessness. What if there was someone in our life who cared for us, who had the power to give us genuine hope, even in the midst of all we go through? There is someone. The Bible identifies him as the God of the universe, and he loves us deeply. He is our Heavenly Father who cares for us. He is the Son of God who took our place. He is the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us and is our daily helper. All three are expressions of the one true God. Let's meet with this God exactly where we are, right here and now, and try to better know the God who loves me. Good morning, Sugar Creek. It is always a blessing to worship with you guys. If you are watching online or if you are at Richmond Rosenberg or Missouri City or here at our Sugarland campus, I want to welcome you one more time to our services. And I want to thank you for letting us be a part of what God is doing in your life. We believe God wants to do amazing things in your life and through your life. And, and so we're thankful as your pastors that you let us be a part of that journey in which you are with God. And, uh, you know, speaking of uh, journeys, uh, uh, a while back when my son was just starting to walk, uh, he came into the kitchen and asked me to give him a cup of his favorite drink. He asked me for a cup of milk. And so I opened the fridge, poured some milk in a cup, gave it to the little guy, and I asked him to sit next to me so that he could enjoy his milk. And he was doing so, and uh, just a few moments later, his sisters, my daughters, came by, and they were playing and running and dancing, and of course, he wanted to be a part of the fun. So when he saw his sisters playing and running and dancing, he took off running after them. Now, this is normal nowadays in our house, but this particular day, while he's learning how to run and walk, he took off running while holding a cup of milk in his hand. And so, as you can imagine, it only took him a few seconds to spill milk all over the living room and the dining room floor. He made a big old mess. It was just messy, messy, messy. And so when he realized what he had done, he stopped, he paused, and, and he, you could tell he was just mad and frustrated. And to my shock, he looked at the cup in his hand and the little bit of milk that was left, and he just threw it on the ground. It's like, man, if you don't think we're born with a sinful nature, then you simply have never parented a toddler before. So I grabbed the little sinful creature and I put him on a chair in the kitchen and I ran to the kitchen to get some towels so that I could clean this mess. But as I came out of the kitchen, I looked at my son there standing or sitting there looking at me and the look on his face had changed. He looked different this time. He, he didn't look mad anymore. Now he looks sad. It was almost like you could tell he was heartbroken, like he was feeling like he desired to run and play while holding something so precious to him. His milk had caused him to lose it, to make a mess, and to potentially get in trouble with his daddy. 
And so he had these big old dark eyes looking at me with tears running down his cheeks and his lip was just a little bit swollen and he just kind of, you know, almost trembling a little bit and he's just looking at me like that. And as I saw him right there and, and feeling like he was feeling, I actually saw myself in him. Not just because the poor thing looks just like me, we're praying he grows out of that, but also because I was going through something very similar at the time. I had not spilled milk all over the floor, but I had gone through a really busy season in life. So uh, this is a while back, I was at a different church and, and I was running at an unhealthy speed. I mean, I had so many responsibilities and I was exhausted mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, I was just tired. And in my desire to keep ministry going and thinking that it all depended on me, I just kept going and I neglected the most important things in my life. I neglected my relationship with the Lord, I neglected my relationship with my family, and I could tell everything was out of bounds, it was not healthy at all, it was an unhealthy situation. And I was staring at it and I knew I needed to make changes, but I didn't even know where to start. Just like my son was looking at all that milk on the floor and didn't even know what to do about that, I was looking at my own mess and didn't even know what to do. And I knew in that moment that however I reacted to that moment was going to be crucial for him and it was gonna form a perspective of me in his little brain. Because I was also wondering in my mind how is God going to respond to the mess I have created here? And what we think about God is absolutely important to us, especially in these key crucial moments in our lives when we've made a mess or when we've made mistakes or, or, or when we're going through trials and tribulations, we have to make sure that we have the right understanding of who God is. A.W. Tozer, who's a known theologian, he said this, he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We can debate all day whether or not uh, that is the most important thing, but if there is a God, which I believe there is a God, then it is definitely important for us to have the right understanding of who he is. Because however we uh, think about God is going to determine how we respond to God and how we respond to that God is going to determine how our lives on this earth go. So it's important that we have the right understanding of God. And that's why we're going through this sermon series which we have titled, The God Who Loves Me. And that's why we learned about the Father three weeks ago and we learned about the Son two weeks ago and we learned about the Holy Spirit last week. And today we're gonna wrap up this series, we're gonna end this series and we're gonna see how these three persons are really one God and what that means to us. We're gonna talk about a doctrine that the church has called for centuries, the Trinity. Now there are a handful of things that make Christianity different from any other religion or faith in the world. And therefore, in my opinion, they're only one true faith. And the Trinity is one of those. We're the only faith that believes in a Trinity. And so it's essential for us to understand what the Trinity is and what the Trinity isn't because we believe God is a Trinity. Now, I'll be the first one to admit that this is uh, one complex task because what we're trying to do here today is try to, to explain an infinite God with finite minds to finite minds and it's just not going to be uh, all perfect. So uh, I understand that maybe you leave this place today with some questions still and that's perfectly fine. Get, there are mysteries of God that we will never comprehend. But when we look at scripture, we find enough evidence 
to believe that even though the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible, God is indeed a Trinity, and that's why the early church leaders came up with this word. So that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna look at a ton of scriptures today. We're gonna look at the Trinity from a systematic theology approach. We're gonna look at the Bible and see what the word of God teaches about uh, who he is. So I pray that you, you are ready for this and that God speaks to all of us uh, this morning. I thought the best way for us to start is uh, coming up with a definition or giving you a definition of this doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity. And the Trinity is this uh, doctrine that teaches that there is only one God who exists in three different persons and each person is equally God. So there is one God who exists in three different persons and each person is equally God. So what I wanna do now is I wanna take each statement in this definition and I I just wanna break it apart and give you the biblical support for each one of these statements. And the first statement that we find there is that there is only one God. This is key for us. Because there are many religions and faiths out there that believe that there are many and multiple gods. And in fact, when we say that the the Father is God or the Holy Spirit is God or the Son is God, there are people who accuse us of being one of these religions, of being a polytheistic religion, meaning that they think that we worship many gods. But that's not at all what we teach, that's not at all what we believe. We believe the word of God, the Bible is inspired by God and it is inerrant and in the Bible from beginning to end we find uh, teaching that there is only one God. In fact, when you open the Bible, the first five books that you find is uh, they're what we know as the law, the books of the law. And in the books of the law we find multiple times the, the teaching that there is only one God. One of those times is in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter six. This passage is known as the Shema. It's a very important passage in the Jewish faith. And it's this passage that they memorized and they, they, I mean, took it very seriously because God told them to. And so it was this, this command to keep the word of God in their hearts but also teach it to the next generations. I want you to see what the Shema say, how it starts. In Deuteronomy 6, 4, it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So this is the Bible speaking, saying, hey, there is only one God. Later on in the Bible, we find what we know as the prophets, and these are the men that God used to tell us about the things that were to come and how God was going to provide salvation for us. And one of those prophets is a man named Isaiah. And in Isaiah, we also find this teaching that there is only one God. Look at what he said in Isaiah chapter 45, verses five and six says this. This is God speaking through Isaiah. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. You see, In the law, we find that there's only one God. In the books of the prophet, we find there's only one God. And in the New Testament, we find that there is only one God. In fact, Jesus himself taught that there is only one God. In one instant, Jesus was asked, what is the most important command? And he replied by quoting the Shema, that passage in Deuteronomy that I just told you about. Look at what he said in Mark chapter 12, verse 29, says this, Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he continued quoting that passage. So you see that Jesus himself taught us that there is only one God. 
And after Jesus died on a cross and resurrected and he ascended into heaven, he established what we know today as the apostles. And these are the early church leaders. They started the church, the Christian church. And the apostles wrote some letters and some books that we have in the Bible, and they also taught that there is only one God. Look at what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, says this, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And then the apostle James also taught us there is only one God. Look at James 2, 19. He said this, you believe that God is one. Listen, you do well, because that is right. There is only one God. But listen to what he says, even the demons believe and they shudder. So James not only teaches us that there is only one God, on top of that he also tells us that even the demons know that there is only one God. So as you can see from beginning to end, we don't have time to look at all the passages that teach us this, but we just saw several from the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see in the Bible that there is only one God. So when we say that we believe in a trinity, we have to understand we're not a polytheistic faith, we are monotheistic faith, we believe that there is only one God who deserves all of our worship and that we surrender our lives fully to him. Now, this same Bible that tells us over and over again that there is only one God also calls three different persons God. And so is the Bible contradicting itself? No. The Bible is telling us that God is one, but that he exists in three different persons. So just like you and I exist as a one human being and who, who we are, our name and whatever it is we wanna use to describe ourselves, God is God in being, instead of human being, he's God in being, but also he's three in persons. And we have seen who these persons are, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit over the last few weeks. So what I wanna do now is I, I wanna just show you uh, several passages of scripture that confirm to us that each person of the Trinity is God. And so God exists in three persons, but you'll see that the Bible teaches specifically that the Father is God. You see that, uh, for example, in Matthew chapter six, so in Matthew chapter six, we find Jesus teaching his disciples, teaching us, his followers, how to pray to God. And this is what we know as the, the Lord's Prayer. And I want you to see how that begins. You see how he teaches how to pray. He says this, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So he's teaching us how to pray, Jesus, and he's teaching us to pray to the Father. So you see that the Father is God. And Jesus didn't just uh, teach this, he also practiced it. Later in his life, in John 17, the night before he died, he's praying to God, and look at what he said in John 17, 11. He says this, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I'm coming to you, listen, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So see, Jesus is teaching us how to pray, and, and not only again says to us, pray like this, he, that's what he did. He prayed to the Father because the Father is God. Even in the most known verse in the Bible, the most Googled at least, which is John 3:16, we find evidence that the Father is God. This is a key verse in our faith because it kind of summarizes uh, what we believe in one verse. Look at what it says, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son 
that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So God so loved the world that he gave his son so that we could have eternal life. Now, uh, for him to have a son to give, he must be a father, right? So you find evidence in this verse also that the father is God. And now, as I mentioned this, I want to pause for a moment. I want to make sure that you have uh, the right understanding of this because we live in an imperfect world and because we live in an imperfect world, we are all imperfect people. And because we are all imperfect people, then maybe the idea of a father may be tainted in your mind, maybe because of your experience on this earth because like all of us, you had an imperfect father. But I want you to see that, that that's not who God is. Because when you look at scripture, you see that he is actually the one and only perfect father. That he is loving, that he is caring, that he is almighty, that he is good, that he is just, that he is righteous, and that he wants what is best for us. That he has an incredible plan for us, that he thought of us before, even before our parents thought of us, if they thought of us. Because that's who God is. God the Father had a plan for our lives before we were born. So what you see in the Bible is that there is this person that the Bible calls the Father and that the Father is God, but you also see that this Father is loving and kind and that he had a plan for us and that he wants us to be in a perfect relationship with him for eternity. This is what uh, Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. This is uh, what uh, he's teaching here, that the Father had a plan for us before the foundation of the world, and he wanted us to be holy and blameless in Jesus Christ for his own glory. That's God the Father. Now, the problem is that we live, again, in an imperfect world, and because of that, we have something called sin, all of us. And that sin doesn't let us be with this perfect father because he's holy, because he's uh, uh, perfect, and we are now, we cannot be with him. And so that's where the second person of the Trinity comes in. That's where the son comes in, and that's why he came to this earth. And you're gonna see that the son, that second person of the Trinity, also is God. The Bible teaches that the son is God. And I want to just to give you a few passages so that you know that this is what the Word of God teaches. In the first four books of the New Testament, we find the story of Jesus from his birth to his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. And there are four different men that just tell us his story, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the four men that gave us the gospel. And every one of those men started the story of Jesus by making sure that for us to understand who Jesus is, we have to know that that baby that was born in a manger is not ordinary baby. He is God himself made flesh. And so that we read those gospel, those books, understanding, having that knowledge. I want to show you how John started his. In John chapter 1, verse 1, he says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, in the beginning, since always, the, the Word has been there and was there, and the Word was God. 
And then in verse 14, he tells us who the word is. Says this, and the word became flesh, talking about Jesus being born from a virgin, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. You see, uh, this second person of the Trinity was born in the form of a baby, in the person of Jesus, but he had all the glory of the Father. He was like the Father, full of grace and full of truth because the Son is God. You see that John taught us that he was there in the beginning, in creation. And Paul, the Apostle Paul confirmed that and told us, in fact, everything was created through the Son and for the Son. Look at what he said to the Colossians. In Colossians chapter one, verse 16, says this, for by him, by the Son, all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Everything was created through the Son and for the Son because the Son is God. So you see this teaching over and over again that the Son is God, and Jesus is that Son who became flesh. Now, uh, there are people who have an issue with this, and they say if he's God, then why did he have to become flesh? Why did he have to come to this world? And not only that, but why did he die the way he died? And, and there are people who just simply challenge this uh, thought. And, and the Bible is very clear that there was a purpose for that. As I said earlier, God wanted us to have a relationship with God, but we messed that up because of our own sin. So God, because he is a loving God, he came up with a way so that we could be restored in that relationship with him. And that is not through anything that we can do, but only through what Jesus came to do. And what Jesus came to do is live the perfect life that none of us could live. And then die the horrible death that all of us honestly deserve because of our sin. He died on a cross, and on that cross, he paid for the penalty of our sins. And the Bible teaches that if we place our faith in that sacrifice, then we can be forgiven and therefore have a relationship with God. He came to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Look at how Paul said it to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says this, for our sake, he, the Father, made him, the Son, to be seen who knew no sin, so that in him, in the Son, we might become the righteousness of God. So the Father treated the Son like a sinner even though he had never sinned, so that he could pay for our sins and so that we could receive the righteousness that the Son received. That is the beautiful message of the gospel that we find in this book from beginning to end. That is the hope and that's what makes us, or gives us the ability to have a relationship with God. So God became flesh in the person of Jesus. The second person of the Trinity, the the Son, became flesh in the person of Jesus to show us the love of God. God the Son demonstrated God's love for us by dying in our place. That's what he came to do for us. Paul said it very, very clearly to the Romans. In Romans 5.8, he says this, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you see, you have God the Father who had a plan for us and he he wanted us to be a part of his family and enjoy a perfect relationship with him, but we messed that up. And so God the Son steps in, lived the life that we couldn't live, died the death that we all deserve, so that 
by faith in him, then we can be restoring our relationship with God. So here's what happened. The son, after he resurrected from the dead to show that indeed he is who he said he was and to demonstrate that he's king of kings and Lord of lords, he ascended into heaven. But before he left, he said, hey, I'm not going to leave you alone. He said to his followers, I'm going to send you a helper, somebody that's going to help you live the life that you couldn't live before. And if you weren't here last week, you didn't watch Pastor Mark's message on the Holy Spirit last week, you need to go back and watch it so that you understand this better. But that is where the third person of this trinity comes in. You see that, that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to indwell in us so that we could live the life that we couldn't live on our own. And the Bible also teaches that the Holy Spirit is God. From the very beginning of the Bible, you see that the Holy Spirit was present in creation. And you see him all through the Bible. Look at what he says in uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The creation account says this, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over, over the face of the waters. You see, the Spirit of God was there in creation, just like the Son was, and just like the Father was. He has always existed as a trinity. And, and we don't have time to go through a, a lot of scripture, but you see the Spirit show up over and over again in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in the New Testament, we find that this Holy Spirit is God. There's one passage that I want to point you to in Acts chapter 5, where Peter tells us that the Holy Spirit is God. Look at what he said in chapter 5, verse 3. He says, but Peter said to Ananias, he was confronting a man for doing something sinful. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then I want you to jump over to the last line in verse 4. This is what it says. You have not lied to man, but to God. So he's equating lying to the Holy Spirit to lying with God because the Holy Spirit is God. You see it over and over again in Scripture that the Holy Spirit is God himself. And like I said earlier, Jesus taught us that when he was about to leave, he said, I'm going to send you a helper so that you have the ability to live the life that we have for you, that God has for you. And as there, he died and resurrected from the dead, and he was around for 40 days. He confirmed that promise as he ascended into heaven. He said, he's coming, and you're going to receive power. Look at what he said in Acts 1.8. It says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to receive this, this power, that word is dunamos in the Greek, which is an explosive power. It's the power of God himself in you. That's the power that you are going to receive. And so you have the Father fulfilling a role in our lives and you have the Son fulfilling a role in our life and now you see that the Holy Spirit also fulfills a role. God, the Holy Spirit, guarantees us that in Christ, God is with us and also that we have the power to live for his glory. We don't have to do it in our own, that God is in us, and now we can obey, and we can live the life that God has for us. He does it in and through us. This is how uh, Paul uh, said this to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, it says this, in him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the moment that you and I receive Christ and we give our lives to him and we understand that he is our savior, that moment we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God and now we have the guarantee that God is with us and that we have the power to live the life that God has for us and live for God's plan for our lives. You see that the Trinity is just amazing because each person of the Trinity plays an important role in our redemption in what God has for us. It's the only way to experience God. And that leads me to the third part of this definition that we started with. And we also have to understand that all three persons of the Trinity are equally God. Listen, we have to make sure that this part is clear for our faith. It's not that God is part Son and part Holy Spirit and part Father. That's not what we are teaching. That's not what we believe. We also have to understand that it's not that sometimes God appears as the Father and sometimes he appears as the Son and sometimes as the Holy Spirit and and he cannot be all three at the same time. God is one God, three persons, all three persons are equally God. We find that in scripture. In fact, that passage that I have quoted a couple of times called the Shema in the Jewish faith, that passage in Deuteronomy gives us a couple of clues to point us to the fact that there is a plurality to God. The passage says that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That word that was translated as God, our God, is the word Elohim in the Hebrew. And that word Elohim in the Hebrew is the plural form for the word God. Just like we would add an S to an English word to make it plural, we would add on the Hebrew, they would add that ending, the him, to make that word plural. So that word Elohim is the plural form for God. Not only that, but when he says the Lord our God, the Lord is one, he used the word Echam in the, in the, in the Hebrew, the Echah, however you wanna pronounce it. But that, that word in, in the Hebrew means one, but, but it's not just one, it's a one comprised of a unity. That's how it's defined in some biblical dictionaries. One comprised of a unity, meaning that there are several that make up one. In fact, in Genesis chapter two, verse 24, when God established the first marriage, he says, the man shall leave his father and his mother and join to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's that word, that word echaz. The two are becoming one. And that's the word that the Shema used to say that the Lord is one. And you find evidence of this in the Bible as well. In the creation account in Genesis chapter one, verse 26, this is God speaking and this is what he says. Then God said, let us, plural form, make man in our image and after our likeness. And we already saw that the Father was in creation and the Son was in creation and the Holy Spirit was in creation. It is the three talking among themselves. Look at what he said after the fall also. It says this, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. You see again the plural form. And there are several passages in scripture in which you see all three persons of the Trinity or two of the three interacting. One of those is Jesus' baptism. Look at what it says in Matthew three sixteen. It says this, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. 
So there's Jesus, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. So now you have the Son, and you have the Holy Spirit. And, the, and then verse 17 says this, and behold, a voice from, the fa- from heaven said, this is my beloved Son. So this is the Father speaking, with whom I am well pleased. So you see all three persons of the Trinity right there, because they are all equally God. Uh, maybe this graphic will help us understand what we just talked about uh, here in a moment. But you see in this graphic that the Father is not the same person as the Son, and the Son is not the same person as the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the same person as the Father. But we also saw that the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Because there is one God who exists in three persons, and each person of the Trinity is equally God. Now, at this point, a lot of you are probably thinking, okay, Ender, you just proved to us that you are a Bible nerd, thank you so much, and that you went to seminary, I appreciate that, but what in the world does that have to do with us? And I'll tell you, it has everything to do with us, because it shows us that there's only one true God, and it's the triune God that we find in the Bible. It shows us that there is only one way to relate to God, and that is through a trinity. You know, when I came out of the kitchen and I saw my son sitting on that chair with his big old eyes and tears running down his face, and and I knew he was wondering how I was going to react to this mess, I I grabbed some of the towels and I gave them to him, and I said, buddy, you made a big mess. It has to be cleaned up. And you could tell he felt overwhelmed immediately because the mess was way bigger than anything that he could handle. And so he was overwhelmed. But I follow that with me getting on my knees, looking at him and saying, but listen, buddy, you're not alone. We cannot do this this together. I'm right here with you. And so let's get on our knees and let's clean this mess. And at this point, God is speaking to me and we both have tears in our eyes and and I'm cleaning this mess and my son is cleaning with me. He's just, he couldn't help anything. But he's there with me, watching me clean and trying to clean. But I'm doing all the cleaning. And in such a much greater and in a perfect way, that's what we see God do for us in a trinity. See, every other religion in the world tells you that God is this deity who created everything and he's expecting you to be perfect and follow certain rules and certain regulations. And if you don't, then you don't measure up and you're never going to be with him. But that is not the Trinity. That is not the God of the Bible. The Trinity, it says that God is a father who had a plan for us before we were even thought of by our parents. Before the foundation of the world, he had already thought of us. And we messed up that plan with our own mistake. We made the mess. But he said, don't worry, I'm right here with you. And so God is also the son who was willing to get in the mess with us and live the perfect life that none of us could live and then die the death that we deserve. So that if we place our faith in him, we can be forgiven and be made righteous before God and our mess is clean. And so God is also the Holy Spirit who says, we know that you can't do this on your own, so I'm gonna seal you with my Holy Spirit so that you can live the life that I have for you in my power and in my own ability. Every other God tells you that you have to do it on your own, but the God of the Bible, the Trinity says, no, we, I do it for you because that's the God who I am. That's the God who loves me. That's the God who loves you. That is the God of the Bible. Listen, when, when I cleaned that mess and my son helped me clean the mess, 
I grabbed him by the hand, took him back to the kitchen. I opened the fridge, poured some milk in that same cup and gave it to him and said, drink your milk. And I popped open a Topo Chico for myself and I sat next to him. (laughs) And now we're not staring at a messy floor anymore. We're staring at a clean floor. Some people may say, well, he didn't deserve that. He threw that cup on the ground. You should have not given it to him. But maybe, but here's the truth. The truth is that I did not deserve what God did for me. Yes, God did it in spite of me. He cleaned the mess, not me. And yet he lets me enjoy a relationship with him. That is the God who loves you. That is the God who loves me. That is the God of the Bible. He is one God in three persons who are equally God. And the only way to respond to a trinity, a loving God like that is by us completely surrendering our lives to him. Because we understand that each person of the trinity plays an important role in God's amazing plan for our redemption. And there are some of you who today, you need to do that for the very first time. Maybe you've been around the things of God, maybe you've been around church, maybe this is your first time, I don't know. Today is the first time that you understood God for who he is and you understood that the only way to get to him is through his son, Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to respond to him the right way by surrendering your life to him. And so if you're watching online and you want to give your life to Christ today and experience this triune God, I want to invite you to talk to one of the chat hosts and tell them that you want to give your life to Jesus and they will help you. But if you are in one of our campuses, in Richmond, Rosenberg, Missouri City, or here at Sugarland, we want to talk to you. If you want to give your life to Christ and you want to experience this true God, true God, this one true God, I want to invite you to let us know. We have in every campus a room that we call the Next Step Center. This is a room where we can talk to you and help you in this journey of faith, and we can lead you to place your faith in Christ Jesus. But also, if you're a believer of the gospel, then I also want to invite you to realize today who this amazing God is and to understand that he deserves that we live for for his glory, not for ours. That he deserves that we surrender our lives fully and totally to him. And that we give our lives so that other people can experience him through us that we live to love and lead all people around us and around the world to life change in Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. God, we love you. We're so overwhelmed by your goodness, how vast you are and yet how personal you are. Overwhelmed by the fact that you would think about us in your greatness and in your majesty before the foundation of the world. And even though we messed up, you made a way for us through your son, Jesus Christ. And God, you have sealed us with your Holy Spirit so that we know we're sure that you're with us and that we can live the life that you have for us. We love you. And in response, we, we want to do that. We want to live for you. Thank you, God. Pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen.